Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. I always love to try this out every year on Easter. Hallelujah, he is risen. All right, great. You're, you're here. You're with it. You kind of know what's going on. Welcome, everyone, uh, to City Beautiful Church. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm pastor here, and today we get to celebrate resurrection. Um, this whole week through Holy Week, we've been uh, kind of following the story of Jesus and really paying careful attention to how exactly is it that God planned to rescue the world, to break us out of these satanic cycles of violence, and to offer us a new way to live to to reintroduce us to what it actually means to be human, not in the way that we define it, but in the way that God has defined it. So last week on Palm Sunday, we began with Jesus' triumphal entry when everybody was on board with the Messiah. This is he that's going to come. He's going to start this rebellion. And we watched how throughout the week, everyone began to walk away from Jesus because he didn't look like the kind of king that they were expecting that was going to come in with power and strength and capability and overthrow the government. But that Jesus actually, in emptying himself for us, is how he actually conquers sin and death. And we followed that story all through the week. On Thursday, we came together here with our friends at the Cross Orlando, and we uh, took part in the Passover meal, the Seder meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And as we talked about, you know, Jesus gave us all of these words and images that kind of set the tone for how he's going to save us through that ultimate act of his death. And we looked at that meal that Jesus is saying, you remember this cup that we've always celebrated as part of the Passover? Well, it's my blood. You remember this this unleavened bread that we always set aside as part of this tradition? Well, it's my body broken for you. On Good Friday, we came together here for an experience to kind of walk the cruciform path of the heart, to understand that it's through the loss of everything for our sake uh, that we're actually rescued. We witnessed uh, the loss of of Mary as the mother of Jesus and and how she's almost a stand-in for us as humanity. We, We discovered the Father's loss, that God the Father looking down on his son and lamenting over the necessary loss in order to save us. We looked at Jesus' loss as he's wrestling with hope and hopelessness through the words of Psalm 22 and then realizing at the end of it when everything has been shed, when everything has been put to death, there's only one thing that can truly remain and that's love. And that's what we're celebrating today. That's what we remember today, that this is what it looks like when God chooses to act within his world and to rescue us, to save us, and to bring him back, uh, to bring all of us back to his original intention for us. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to get right into what the Lord has for us. Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you're here and that you're with us, you are for us, and you are not against us. Lord, we come in um, at all different stages of experiencing this week through wrestling with our own stuff through being overwhelmed by whatever's going on within our city, within our nation, within our world. And we come here uh, because we're expectant of hope, not because we just want to sing some songs, not just because we want to listen uh, to to the Bible, but we actually want to hear your voice. That's a high expectation, Lord, but it's one that we're not willing to back down on. And so, Father, would you open our ears to hear you speak? Would you open our eyes to be able to see you move in and through our stories? Would you open our hearts to receive your truth? May the words of my lips 
and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so how do we frame what it is that not only we're commemorating today, but we're actually expectant of participating in? And there's all sorts of different theories, and there's a million different angles that you can go with trying to explain the cross and the resurrection. And and even one of the things that that I talked about on Friday was one of those things that kind of pops in as you're saying, and you're like, ah, yes, is very often it's our theology that actually prevents us from encountering the reality of the cross, the reality of the resurrection because we've been given a succinct little theory that kind of explains it, but it explains it in a way that it's, it's no longer compelling and effective. It kind of puts it in a little drawer and we can kind of bring it out once a year to go, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins, da 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 so on and so forth. And these little formulas actually keep us from allowing the story to interpret who we are, to wash over us and to transform us. And so this is kind of how I want to frame the story today as we're trying to understand what it is that God has done on our behalf. Easter tells the story of the triumph of Jesus over evil and the establishment of his new kingdom. What we're doing today is we're telling ourselves this story that this is what it looks like for God to triumph over evil, first of all, but then in evil's place to establish some sort of new reality, a new way of being human, a new way of being in community, a new way of most profoundly being in relationship with the creator of everything. And I think it bears for us to ask the question, what exactly happened on the cross? Several years ago when I was running the school of ministry up in Nashville, that was one of the things that I asked the students early on, what, what is the gospel? If you could uh, try to make it succinct and kind of give me like one really convenient line that I could put on a bumper sticker, what is the gospel? One student very confidently raised his hand. He grew up in church his whole life. He said, Jesus uh, came to forgive us of our sins um, so that we could go to heaven when we die. I said, nope, that's not, that's not, that's not the answer. And it got as silent as it did in here. Because a lot of times that's what we're raised, right? Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And I said, turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is uh, and 4.23. This is right before the Sermon on the Mount, just after Jesus has had his temptation in the desert. We find this line. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus has not died yet but he's already proclaiming the gospel. He's already proclaiming the good news. And so I think that challenges us to reassume that maybe our understanding of the cross and what exactly God did there is maybe a little bit too small if it comes in that convenient package of Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. I don't know if that really cuts it or gives us the magnitude of what God actually accomplished. And it's really important to recognize that Jesus beginning to preach the good news of the kingdom in his first sermon, Jesus' first sermon was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We could maybe translate it today as change the way that you think because the reality of God is so close that you can practically touch it. And just before Jesus announces the good news of the kingdom, he has this confrontation with the Satan, the accuser, the devil. And I'm not talking about, you know, kind of those images that we've kind of more received from the Middle Ages of, you know, the the pitchfork and the horns and he listens to heavy metal music and all of that kind of thing. That's not the Satan that I'm talking about. But the accuser, and it's really interesting because what we find time and again in the Gospels is Satan is the ruler of the world in the beginning of the story. 
And then Jesus is the ruler of the world at the end of the story. And this seems to be the story that all of the gospel writers actually want to tell us. And even more interesting is rarely does anybody in the entire Bible talk about heaven as the afterlife. There's one verse in the Gospels where maybe Jesus is talking about the afterlife. Most of what he's talking about is heaven here now on earth, that eternal life is something that we step into today. And it doesn't mean that they didn't believe in, a, in, a, in an afterlife, that a, the heavens in that sort of way, but they didn't really spend a lot of time and energy working on it. I remember hearing an interview with a theologian, N.T. Wright, who's from England, and they said, you know, what do we do with this whole heaven hell thing? And he said, you Americans, you're so obsessed with this idea of heaven and hell and the afterlife, and it's very rarely talked about in the New Testament. He said, heaven's the, important, but it's not the end of the world. And I think when we begin to recognize that now, When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about something that begins now and the story carries us through to whatever that glorious future may actually be. And so the gospel, the good news, is the proclamation of this kingdom, this new reality, this new authority that stands in stark contrast to the reality that we see when Satan rules the world, when Satan is in charge. And I think that this is how Paul himself actually understood the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 2. This is where I think Paul so beautifully talks about how he understands what it is that God accomplished on the cross. He says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Remember, we even used that language last week talking about Palm Sunday. So hold on to that language of power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. We could get into that. We could do whole sermons about circumcision. Let's just say that it's a mark that you're now part of a family. Okay, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave out the details and the graphics. We'll do that some other Sunday. So your whole self was ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised with Christ, when you were marked by him to be rescued into God's family. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And they think this is the key part. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. See, that's part and parcel of the larger package. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And I think this is the climactic understanding. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That Jesus on the cross disarmed the powers and the authorities. He disarmed evil. And I love that it even talks about it as making a public spectacle of him, that Jesus made a mockery of what power looks like in the flesh and the enemy and the world. I remember several years ago, I was walking down the beach with my dad, and I had these deep existential questions about evil, and as most deep existential questions come, it's because I was interested in a girl, and I wanted to get to know her more, and I needed his advice. But of course, we had to talk about evil. (laughs) This girl's very sweet, and we're talking, and and she would say things like, oh, I woke up this morning, and I stubbed my toe. Satan's really out to get me and to, to ruin my day. And, you know, growing up Anglican, I was like, 
I don't know if that's how that works, but okay. Like, you're very attractive and I like talking to you, so I'm, well, I kind of play along. <laughs> so I'm asking my dad, like, what, what exactly, where is, where, how does, what is evil and how does it focus in on this thing? And so dad, as a good, you know, Anglican said, well, you know, we've got this holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's also this unholy trinity that we see time and again through scripture of the flesh, the enemy or the Satan, and the world. He says this unholy trinity that kind of conspires against the kingdom of the Trinitarian God. And, and, you know, as Christians, we have a natural proclivity just to fall into one of those three categories. So for some Christians, it's the flesh. If we can defeat the flesh, then we've done what Jesus has done. And that means no drinking, no smoking, you know, like nice side hugs and, and all of that. Like if we, can, if we can behave ourselves, if we can just follow the rules. And so if we, we obsess that it's just about the conquering of the flesh, then we have to memorize all the rules and the regulations uh, in order to be more like Jesus. And he said, in some of us as Christians, it's the enemy, the Satan. There's a devil behind every bush. And it's never just a headache, you know? It's never just a headache. That's Satan coming after you. And so sometimes we can obsess that it's all about the enemy and we want to do deliverance on all of these things and we actually ignore so much of the material world because it's all being fought on this spiritual plane. And unfortunately, that can lead us to these assumptions that, yeah, like, this thing doesn't really matter. You know, the physicality of the world doesn't really matter. It's all about angels and demons somewhere else fighting this, you know, epic spiritual battle and soon all of this is going to just go away and then we're going to be little, you know, baby cherubs playing harps on a cloud. That's, you know, when we kind of, it's just about the, 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 the enemy. And then the third category is the world. And some Christians, we gravitate towards the world. If we could fix the world, then we'll create heaven. If we could just, you know, change how we do government and, and education and, you know, our judicial system, like, if we can fix those things to make them look more like what Jesus probably would have want them to have, because isn't that the hardest question? What, what would Jesus do with some of the scenarios we find in the 21st century? But if we can just fix the world and create utopia, then that's what heaven looks like. My dad said, you know, it's, we're in danger if we just kind of allocate evil to being one of those three categories that reinforces what we already believe about God and the world and how everything works. But in reality, these three things conspire together to create this unholy trinity, this bastion of evil that stands against the kingdom of God. And I believe that so much of the fuel behind that is what we talked about last week as the satanic story that stands in opposition to the Jesus story. The satanic story is, is fueled by fear and accusation. The satanic story uh, it enables us to think that power looks like control, whether it's controlling our flesh, whether it's being able to control the spiritual realm, or whether it's being able to control the world. And so often we buy into the satanic story that tells us that power and authority are found in control and in us being capable and able and strong and and just making it happen by our own merit. Because unfortunately, that's what happens when we find ourselves so deep into one of those three categories of evil that we take it upon ourselves that it's our job to conquer evil and to fix the world, to fix ourselves or to fix the spiritual realm. But when we try to overcome evil on our own, we tend to just reach for a bigger stick because we believe that that's how it works. We've believed that satanic whisper in the back of our minds that says, you just have to fight harder. You just have to be stronger than whatever else is coming up against you. And so as human beings, we develop eye for an eye forms of justice. 
As human beings, we believe that it's the survival of the fittest and the strongest, those who are entitled to actually live. And if you're not strong enough, if you're not capable enough, if you're not smart enough, if you're not good-looking enough, well, then it's just too bad. You're going to be kind of passed along on the wayside. And when we try to overcome evil on our own terms, we continue to perpetuate these cycles of violence in our personal lives, globally, within our community, because we believe that power is found in control and strength. And it wasn't so different in the first century. Messiah was actually a really popular vocation right around the first century. There were a lot of messiahs. There were a lot of people that, that, that the, specifically the Jews were looking at saying, ah, yeah, he looks like the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, in the 160s BC, so 160 years before Jesus, there was what we call the Maccabean Revolt. It was led by Judah Maccabees, who had maybe the best nickname of all time. He was the Hebrew Hammer. That was his name. And he and his brothers led this revolt against the empire at the time, which was the Greek empire. So the Greeks kind of were controlling the Middle East, and they actually, it worked. They actually conquered the Greeks and pushed them out of Judea, and they were able to reestablish um, a kingly line through the Maccabeans. And, it, and that lasted for about 100 years. And then Rome came in and kind of smashed that uh, government and took over Judea and began to establish their own. So they you know, established later on Herod, who was a really good, responsible soldier, really placated uh, to Caesar. They put him in as a fake king, and they brought in people like Pontius Pilate as governors that, you know, the, the Jews kind of control their destiny, but really Rome's just kind of sitting over top of that. And so that revolution lasted all of 100 years. And then 130 years after Jesus, there was another revolution called the Bar Kokhba Revolution. That was against Rome. And so this guy, Bar Kokhba, was raised up, and everybody goes, oh my gosh, yes, totally, that's what a Messiah looks like. That's what a king looks like. And he leads this revolution against the Roman Empire, and of course, that's squashed. And we see this story time and again through history within those kind of first century areas is that so many people we're convinced that God's Messiah, his chosen one, his king, is going to come in. He's just going to come in with a bigger stick. And he's going to be able to, to beat up the empire, and we're going to reestablish our kingdom, and this is how it's going to work. And of course, it didn't. You see, violence of that measure is a short-term solution. But in the long term, violence just begets more violence. And we see that history can be interpreted as the the raising and falling of empires who choose to try to build power based on a controlling people, of oppressing people, of believing that might makes right, an eye for an eye as a way for us to manage the world. And that's not what Jesus came to do. And that's not what Jesus came to enact for us. Jesus disarmed the power and authorities at the source in order to rescue us and to give us a new way of living. And so this unholy trinity, the flesh, the enemy, and the world, they all start to conspire against Jesus. You know, sometimes when we limit Jesus as just being a good teacher, it doesn't really make sense why he was murdered. But it was actually that he was going around and blaspheming. He was saying things about himself and about God that nobody's ever allowed to say. And so we find from the moment that Jesus begins to preach, everybody is threatened. The status quo is threatened. 
whether it's the religious authorities or the governmental authorities, everybody is threatened by what he's saying because he's offering this new path forward. And he's saying there's actually a, a, a new and different way to be able to connect with God, to live in his kind of kingdom where we see real justice enacted. And so e- evil begins to gather itself up throughout the story to conspire against Jesus. And it culminates in Holy Week. Again, we looked at that last week of Jesus being uh, abandoned by his friends who maybe they had bought into that idea that the Messiah was supposed to be some sort of warrior king. We see him accused by the religious elite and the governmental authorities and then crucified. And what we find that somehow, mysteriously, that it is Jesus' death that took into himself all the evil of the world, all, all that our flesh enacts, all that the enemy enacts against us, and all of our systematic uh, ways of ordering the world. He takes all of that into himself and takes it down to, uh, I almost said Valhalla. <laughs> he, he takes it to Hades. He takes it to the place of death. I mean, we could say Valhalla. I don't know. It's all the same, right? And I think... If it had just ended there, you know, if, if, if it was the violence of mankind enacted upon Jesus as the representative of God, and that he chose that he was going to be more faithful to God just by dying rather than striking back, I think that would have been an inspiring story. I think we're inspired by stories of martyrs to say this person believed so much in their point of view, this person believes so much in their convictions that they were willing to die for them. We love that story. But I think for many of us as Christians, we can get stuck there. We kind of get stuck at, at Good Friday, that Jesus died, and it was very noble death, and you know, we should maybe try to be more like him in that way. We have to rec- recognize, though, that it's Jesus' sacrifice that took death and evil away but the necessity of the resurrection, that's the place where we find the triumph. That Jesus being resurrected on Sunday, and I don't know, maybe this is controversial, I believe that actually happened. I don't think that that's a nice metaphor, although there's metaphorical things we can extract from it, but I think it's very important that Jesus was actually bizarrely resurrected, came back to life on the Sunday morning because what that says is really the supposed powers that be are actually no powers. All of the authority of the flesh is actually no authority. All the authority of Satan, the accuser, evil, is no authority. All the powers of the world are no powers at all. Because God vindicated Jesus. That means God justified him. God proved that he was who he said he was by raising him to life on the third day. And that's the place where Jesus is finally able to finish the rescue project. That he has disarmed and dismantled evil itself right there at the core. In the same way that Moses stood up to um, the, the, the flesh that we found in Egypt, he stood up to what we saw as uh, evil incarnated in the, in the Egyptian gods, what we saw as him standing up to uh, Pharaoh on behalf of the status quo of the world the way that it was then, and that Moses stood up and triumphed against those things to lead Israel out of slavery. So Jesus did the same thing, but against all evil to lead all mankind out of that place. And we find this so beautifully illustrated in Revelation chapter 5. Y'all know this is one of my favorite books. How do we understand Revelation? Real quick. Okay. Revelation is a surrealist play that's showing us things that are happening on a level that we can't see with our human eyes. 
So what you can essentially do is take Revelation and you stick it over top of the Gospels. And all of these words and symbols are showing us what was happening in the, the life of Jesus in the earthly realm from this perspective. So it's kind of this weird, you know, Salvador Dali movie that has like monsters and beasts and giant whores and you know, angels clamoring over mountains and all this really bizarre language to show us this is kind of what it looks like from the heavenly perspective. And time and again, it gives us these amazing images of Jesus that go so far beyond understanding him just as a really good teacher or maybe he could have had you know, a really nice place in government if he had kind of, you know, unfortunately he was cut down early in his life or whatever. We see these amazing images um, that show us who Jesus really was from that imaginative uh, heavenly perspective. And so in Revelation 5, we find this amazing story. John, he's kind of writing from the first person, and he says, you know, I'm standing there, and, and I see this scroll, and I know that this scroll contains God's blueprints for how he's going to save the world. That's the plan. It's all there. It's all written down on how God's going to do it. And so somebody calls out, well, who's going to rescue the world? Who's, who's worthy of opening up God's plans and figuring out how God wants to save the world? And I looked around, and there was nobody that was worthy of it. None of us. We, none of us were good enough you know, none of us would even understand what it is that we're reading. And so I wept. And this is kind of where we're stepping in in Revelation 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. I love this image. I, this is one of my favorite images of Jesus. A slain, slaughtered lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. And there's almost this, this choir, this chorus. And as the, the story continues on in Revelation, it gets bigger and bigger. So it starts with the, these four living creatures and these elders, and they're singing this song. And then like all of the people that God's saving, they start to sing this song, and it continues to build. And then all of creation, animal and plant and star, everything is singing this song together to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And I love this story because it's so counterintuitive. I think maybe this is the, the best way that John could actually show us what really happened on the cross. And kind of going back, you know, they say, like, behold, the Lion of Judah. And this was language from the Old Testament of, like, the Messiah. He's going to come in like this roaring lion of our people, and he's going to rescue us and save us and beat up all the bad guys. He says, behold, the Lion of Judah. And he says, I turned and I looked, and there was a lamb. Not just a lamb, but a slain lamb. I have this expectation for a lion, and I look, and there's this slain lamb. I think this 
is maybe the divine punchline. I think this is maybe the great joke of Scripture. That it, it subverts our expectations of what it looks like for us to be saved. I want to give you an example because I think, and I promise you I planned this before I knew that today was April Fool's Day. <laughs> the, the worst thing that you can do is explain how jokes work. Okay? But what a joke does is it sets up this normal... <laughs> this expectation. A joke gives you a world to live in, and it gives you the language and the colors and all of these things, and then something happens at the end that subverts your expectation of how you read the rest of the thing, and that's what makes it funny. So let's see if this actually works. This is my, I'm going to tell you two of my favorite jokes. So there's an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman, and they want to get into the Olympics, but they can't afford tickets, okay? So they're trying to figure out how they're going to do this, and there's this gigantic fence all around the place, and there's security, and they notice that, you know, the Olympians, they get to come in with all of their gear for the Olympics. So the Englishman, he kind of thinks, huh, okay. So he looks around, and he, he finds this big, long pole that they, you know, that one of these spare bits that they had been building this fence with, and he goes up to the front door, and he says, Hadley Row, England, pole vaulting. And they said, okay, come, yeah, come on in, you're good. And the Scotsman says, aye, that's a good idea. And he walks around him for a moment, and he sees a manhole cover, you know, from the sewer cover. And so he goes and he picks it up, and he walks over, and he says, McGinnis, Scotland, discus. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 come on in, come on, come in. <laughs> and so the Irishman, you know, good old Seamus, he looks around, and he says, I don't know, I don't know. And he sees this roll of barbed wire, you know, because they're trying to keep everybody out. He sees this bar roll of barbed wire. So he picks it up. And he very confidently walks over and he says, Seamus O'Neill, Ireland, fencing. <laughs> so what I just did was I built this world. You know, I built this world that has these rules in it of like how things work. And you go, oh, that's funny. Like they found this sneaky way to do it. And then it's the, just the little twist at the end that just subverts all of our expectations of everything we just heard. I'm going to make it even more succinct. This is my favorite joke in the entire cosmos, okay? Two fish are swimming around in a tank. One turns to the other and says, hey, do you know how to drive this thing? <laughs> it still works, you know? You go, tank, yeah, okay. And then something happens, and it's not what you were expecting. And this is the insanity, like the, the beauty of comedy. I think it was George Carlin talked about how laughter opens us up to be able to receive truth because it breaks us out of the status quo. I even remember when I was a high school teacher showing um, skits from Mr. Bean to my class and they're just sitting there going, I don't get it. He's not saying anything. I was like, yeah, that's why it's funny. But I think Revelation 5 is the hilarious joke that God pulled on the status quo that we all assume this is how the world is supposed to work. This is what it is going to look like when God comes. It's going to be this big, roaring lion who's going to come in and just going to tear everything up and then restart it. And we turn and we look, and it's this slaughtered lamb. It's this ironic move that God makes. Because I think we've been so conditioned to expect how God is going to operate in our status quo world that we can so often miss the adventure that's afforded to us in the kingdom. I think this is why, for me, for me, and this is maybe different for you, this is why I don't think that the gospel is practical. I don't think the gospel is very practical. Because usually when we talk about practical, we're talking about what works within our status quo. What works in the world the way that it already is now. 
What are some suggestions? Again, we've reduced the good news, the gospel, to good advice. What's the good advice that I can take, even from the story of Jesus, to kind of find my way through the status quo of the world the way that it is today? And often when we're talking about practicality, we're talking about status quo. We're talking about basically everything being the same that it is today, tomorrow. And I do not think the gospel is practical. I think the gospel is radical. I think the way that God chose to save the world was radical. It was subversive. It was counterintuitive. It challenges everything that we understand about how the world works. And ultimately, it's very affirming. And so everything that Jesus did in his ministry was a warm-up to the ultimate defeat of evil on the cross. Every word, every action that he's proclaiming the good news, he's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, all of this was the warm-up to that ultimate defeat of evil on the cross. And then to inaugurate this new world, this new reality, where no longer is Satan the king of the world, but that God is. And what's the language of the new kingdom of God? The language is forgiveness. The language is healing, the language is deliverance, the language is liberation, the language is reconciliation. In a word, the language of the kingdom of God is resurrection. That things don't have to be the way that they've always been. That there is a new world, that there's a new thing to hope for. And that's what we're celebrating today. That all of our assumptions of how the world is supposed to work have been dismantled. And they've been destroyed because Jesus overcame all of that on the cross and through his resurrection. And we get to announce the triumph of the lamb who was slain every day with everything we are. This is our part, that we don't walk this earth giving good advice. We walk this earth demonstrating good news. I think Paul, again, understood this so beautifully in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And so far, we're all on board. Yeah, armor, strength, power, let's do this thing. And then he goes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's in on the joke. He recognizes the divine punchline. It was never about flesh and blood. It was never about defeating other people. It was never about just creating a new system of government to organize people. It was about this full allegiance to the lamb who was slain and that we pick up his fight, but we fight in his way, not in our own. One of the great empire builders of the last 2,000 years, I think, understood this to some degree, although I wonder if he was able to fully capture it in his own life. Napoleon Bonaparte said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. This 
is what makes the story so true for me. Not because I affirm that it happened historically, although I believe that it did, but because I have tasted and I have seen the kingdom of God in action. Because there's something within you that does not question whether or not forgiveness is good. There is something within all of us that does not question whether healing, deliverance, liberation are good things. We just celebrate them and we're in awe of them when we actually see them in our lives. I think the story of Jesus is true because on this very, very deep level, his solution to the brokenness and the violence of the world makes sense. And it's when we see it enacted in the lives of those around us every day that we testify to the reality of the new kingdom. But we need the divine imagination that only the story of the lamb who was slain can offer us to have hope for our world. We need to encounter this story. We need to allow this story to wash over us, to challenge all of our assumptions of how things work. Because unfortunately, if we write off the peaceful revolution of the lamb who was slain, we're giving ourselves over to hopelessness. We're saying our personal lives, the lives of our community, the lives of you know, the entire world is basically going to be the same tomorrow as it is today. We give ourselves over to hopelessness when we believe that Jesus had some really nice ideas, but they don't work in the real world. But when, by faith, motivated by love, we practice forgiveness, we practice healing, we practice deliverance, we practice liberation, we practice reconciliation. We are enacting the resurrection of the lamb who was slain with our own personal lives, with our words, with our deeds. And the more that we practice resurrection, the more it becomes true in our lives. This isn't something that I'm inviting you to take merely by historical fact. I'm inviting you to taste and see that the Lord is good and that he has rescued this world through the slaughtered lamb. And so let's stand together. And I just want to create a moment for us to be quiet before the Lord and just see if there's anything that he wants to say to each one of us about where we are in this moment. What is it that brought us into this space on an Easter Sunday? Is it because this is how the world works and these are the rules? Or is it because we have expectation to encounter the story of the Lamb who was slain and in turn to be slain by that story and brought to new life? So, Holy Spirit, I invite you now to anoint on each of your dearly beloved here. Soften our hearts, soften our minds, that if there's something you want to speak to us, that you would speak now because we are here and we're listening.
Father, when we were dead in our sins and in this uncircumcision of our flesh, you made us alive with Christ. You forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. You have taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, you have made a public spectacle of them. You have triumphed over them by the cross. And that's the world that we get to live in today. So fathers, we continue in worship. We give you permission to continue to speak, to act, to move, to teach us resurrection, to demonstrate resurrection, to give us the new hope that can only be found in the Lamb who was slain, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.